0: Archaeology Podcast, a podcast about for and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotin, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we'll be chatting with co-hosts Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez about the presidential election and how a Biden presidency might impact the cultural heritage landscape in the US.
1: Woo Biden presidency. <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> Sigh of relief. Yes.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was really excited. Uh, I think that we're we're all pretty excited. We all have kind of watched over the last four years as the Trump administration has done a lot of really damaging things, Um, enacted legislation, appointed certain people to high positions um, that have been damaging to the national parks, to public lands, um, particularly to tribes and tribal relationships. So I for one am, I'm really looking forward to an improvement
1: in those relations
0: <laughs> in the next 4 years. Um but do either you ladies have like immediate takes that you want to jump in on?
1: Uh sure. I mean, I can say pretty quickly it it's one and and I know it's probably true for all of us that the election itself since it lasted for a few days was incredibly stressful. Just the not knowing what was going to happen and whether or not we'd have Another four years of these really destructive practices perpetuated by this administration on multiple levels. And so just having that brief sigh of relief. I mean, it's hard to know what this administration will hold, but if they hold true to what they've been putting out in terms of their plan, things will definitely be considerably better um, for cultural resources. Uh, and to science, the fact that we'll believe in science again. Um, and then, of course, there's just the the really just deep feeling of just, like, finally of having um, a woman at a higher position and more than just that, a, a woman of color.
2: Agreed on all notes. Um, I would also like to say if they hold up to their past. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of them have really good records for... Uh, relationships with culture and the arts um, and with um, I wasn't able to find a whole lot on the relationship with tribes, but it looked like you were, Emily, able to dig some stuff up. Um, But between um, Biden's history as a senator with Delaware um, or for Delaware over the years and his uh, actions through time with relationship to um, supporting Things such as the Smithsonian Museums of the African-American, uh, the, what's the name for it properly? National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Thank you. That one. I'm like, I always get that wrong just because it's so long. Um, it's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and approving um, and being part of uh, the advocacy for what will hopefully become Um, the Smithsonian Museum of the Latino American. Um, That would be amazing. So that's something that's on the drawing board as well but they both have a track record for supporting the arts and museums so that's one side of it. Of course archaeology has other facets and I think some of Biden's discussion on his plan for development in rural areas and in support of research and development appear to be in support of, or at least would help buttress archaeology as a practice as well. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah,
1: I mean the big thing—we don't have to fear for our jobs quite so much. Yeah, and
0: Houston, I would say
1: you bring up a really interesting point that it's
0: not just specific legislation that you know, a, a Biden-Harris ticket is going to make improvements upon, but we're going to have people who consider tribal sovereignty and the archaeological record in with their other proposals. And I mean, even the work that they want to do towards combating climate change is going to have a huge impact on the archaeological record. Mm-hmm. So I do think that you have to to maybe zoom back a little bit or look outside the box to see some of the full positive impacts that um, this, you know, president, vice president, uh, and their administration mm-hmm. might have on you kind of archaeology archeolo- specifically, but the broader cultural heritage mm-hmm. realm as well.
1: That's a really good point. Uh, just before we uh, get too deep into Potential policy and whatnot. Chelsea, I'm very curious from um, an overseas perspective. What was the election like for you?
0: Yeah, so I will say I am very glad that there is a five hour time difference. <laughs> um, I've, I've talked to some friends and family who talk about election night where it really did look like Trump was leading and mm-hmm. might take the presidency because all of those mail in ballots still needed to be counted. Um, I slept through all of that because I wasn't going to stay up until you know two three o'clock in the morning. Um, so when I woke up, I think Biden was ahead by you know three or five electoral college votes according to the BBC. Um, so so I didn't kind of have to live through those absolutely terrifying oh god not again um, hours. So that was that was really nice, and there has been some focus in the UK on kind of what a, a Biden-Harris administration might mean for um, trade agreements, particularly with the UK mm. um, coming down to the wire on Brexit. And we still don't have an agreement, a trade agreement with the EU. And yeah. Trump Trump was kind of cozy with Boris Johnson and seemed to like him, Biden. So there's still some disagreement. The um, there's the Easter Sunday agreement, which basically says that there can't be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And it's the agreement that ended the Troubles,
2: mm-hmm. which is
0: the IRA with bombings and shootings and like very bad things were happening. Um, and that, uh, that agreement, Boris Johnson has kind of said like, well, maybe we can do things that invalidate that.
1: Why would you want to do that?
0: because they didn't think through their Brexit strategy and they backed oh. themselves into a corner. And um, th- there's a big issue with, with trade and borders and what's going to happen in terms of customs, um, et cetera, as all of this um, changes. mm mm-hmm. And one one solution was to put a border between Northern Ireland um, and the Republic of Ireland, but the Good Friday Agreement says that that um, can't happen. It was only signed in 1998. Um, But Biden um, is, his ancestry is Irish and Biden feels very, very strongly about agreeing and upholding regulations that have been passed in the past. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the, the focus kind of come down to does Downing Street, does the British government do something different? Because now there's power in the U.S. that might say, hey, this is not OK. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be some more kind of consequences for, for breaking that agreement.
1: That's interesting. And didn't Boris Johnson already refer to, um, to Biden as like the incoming president, therefore kind of saying we acknowledge that he is the incoming as regardless of the Trump administration's being a being a bit ridiculous about the election outcome
0: yeah Boris Johnson has acknowledged that Biden um, has won the election I think actually in one briefing he even refused uh, referred to the Trump administration as the previous administration even though they're not out of office yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also worth noting that when elections happen in the UK this kind of lame duck period is much shorter. Mm. Um, so the idea that you can have an election on November 3rd, kind of know the results within a couple days, have the official ratification a month later, and then it's another, what, six or seven weeks till January 20th. Um, Mm. that's a very foreign concept in the UK. Um, why would you leave someone in power who's lost (laughs) confidence in the country? (laughs) That's a really good point.
2: (laughs) Um, But Um. yeah.
0: Johnson has definitely recognized that Biden will be the
2: next president. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I always kind of wondered about that time weirdness as well. Um, But getting to know the transition process, because it's not being allowed to happen right now, a (laughs) lot of hoopla about it. um, It does give you, uh, or at least it, it, it gave me a little bit of a like, Oh, that's why it takes so long because there is so much that needs to be done in order to, successfully transition power you know you have to have an entirely new staff and everyone is switched out basically Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of employees to do hiring for and screening for and i mean generally i'm sure he has people in mind but it's it's quite a process because it's such i mean we're we're a very large country i mean even looking at the person who's going to be evaluating um the department of interior transition looking at and seeing how many employees and volunteers oh gosh, yeah. and individual locations that is just for that one agency is mind-boggling
0: mm-hmm.
2: and That's a good
0: good point, have, yeah um, like biden has not sat in office for basically since he um, left in 2017, you know, obviously when Trump came in, he hadn't been a governor, he hadn't been a congressperson or a senator. Um, but just getting the incoming administration access to the um, security reports, like the military um, yeah. information, about what's going on, you need to get people up to speed so that they can can land and start running. And that is one way that the UK and the US are different in that the UK, you don't actually vote for a person, you vote for a party. And then the party elects someone from within their own membership, who's a sitting member. Huh. So you're guaranteed that whoever is going to be prime minister has at least been in the government and kind of has that runway to prep in a way that isn't always guaranteed in the US.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, if you, especially if you look at, I mean, this current administration and who's been, Put in positions of power who really shouldn't be there, <laughs> on, on many levels. But go, going back to that that transition period, I, I find it fascinating looking at kind of the end of the Obama administration. And I could be remembering this incorrectly, but wasn't Bear's ears pr- like pretty latent and in, in like a last minute type thing in the in at his in, last term. When it was created, and it just makes me wonder during this transition period, what's going to be pushed through in the last couple weeks here?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. So I will say the one kind of positive and credit—it's kind of, all like rumor mongering—but um, the one positive that I've heard of rumors within the White House is that even if he hasn't publicly said it, that Trump has kind of internally accepted that he's lost. And he's really starting to think about what comes next, whether it's jail, uh, you know, book deal or <laughs> jail. Yeah. He's floated <laughs> doing this, this um, Republican super PAC, but if he's focused on what comes next, there's a bit of me that hopes that like, he's not going to try and ram through anything terrible at the last minute. I mean, you still have um, the Senate. Um, yeah. You know, approving conservative judges to lifetime appointments, and like there are problematic things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Emily, I think you're right that the Bear's Ear was late. But um, positive news on the Barrett Ear and Grand Escalante front, right? One of the things that Biden has said about those two sites is that he hopes to roll back. Um, Some of the damage that Trump mm-hmm. has done, and, and more firmly establish their status as
1: um, you know,
0: protected sites. So that's really good.
1: Definitely. And if people uh, don't remember, per se, uh, with the Bears' Ears Grand Staircase Escalante, we do have an episode about uh, the monuments and. Uh, what the Trump administration was doing with them and using the Antiquities Act in a very different kind of way by dismantling national monuments as opposed to creating national monuments. And so we we have discussed that in the past um, if you're interested in checking out that episode. But I do wonder, is this going to be just a, a consistent like flip flop or a political issue for every different administration will Bears Ears be consistently one of those things where it's like let's increase now let's decrease the acres let's increase and decrease and it it does make me wonder how can we transition it from like a more vulnerable national monument to something that's less vulnerable because as we've seen even in this administration national parks are even under threat and so how can we make Places like this, like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, um, the issue with Oregon Pipe, the uh, Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. Is that right? Um, How can we make these places safer after a Biden administration?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I wonder if there's a way to help um, to pass some sort of legislation. I mean, this is sort of the plus and minus to, I guess, the U.S. structure. But any legislation can be passed basically at any point, which can do pretty much anything within the structure or to the structure of the government and how it functions. And just being in a volatile moment, everything kind of feels like it's impermanent. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do wonder if, because there's always been, and I mean, most of us were taught in, as archaeologists in our cultural resource management courses, if we had the privilege of taking them um, in undergrad or grad school, um, that a lot of those laws are very precarious
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: and not well, um, not well, Yeah, not well supported. Not well worded. They're not very solid. They're kind of gushy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are great ideas? What enforcement
0: agencies are there that have teeth that guarantee that people have to follow the rules or there will be consequences? Exactly. They
1: really aren't. I mean, so it's more it's a good way to think of our, our CRM legislation, like the National Register or sorry, National Historic Preservation Act. It's uh, guidance and The repercussions is that the agency, if you don't follow the guidance, is you can be sued. So by whatever stakeholder is interested in protecting said resource. So if it's birders, archaeologists, etc. But this guidance can also be used in a way to be like, look, we want to build a, a mall on top of Mesa Verde. Well, the guidance if we go through all the steps properly and excavate and record and do everything they could still put that mall on top because you've followed the guidance it doesn't necessarily mean specific protection of cultural resources yeah. and that and Kirsten you're exactly right that's where it gets gushy because even the archaeological resources protection act it's really hard to prosecute somebody under that too
2: yeah that is like the closest thing there is to something with teeth and it has to be proven that the person is knowingly doing this against the law, um, for one, and they kind of have to be caught red handed is the best way to put it. You, there have been uh, prosecutions after the fact, for sure, mm-hmm. but it's usually like glaringly obvious. Um, yeah. It's really hard to prosecute someone who's been doing it on the down low or who's like, you know, has a family collection and has been adding mm-hmm. to it. Um, because usually big profile cases yeah so it's mm-hmm. it's hard to to really do much with that as is so maybe with any luck you know that could be something that we can look forward to as something with more teeth but I don't necessarily have my hat hanging on that before mm-hmm. we get there we need to just kind of establish everything is okay to start <laughs> yeah. yeah hopefully well, like I-
1: that the house and it will Hopefully, help with that, even if we have a divided Congress altogether. That hopefully they'll support Biden's uh, plans to reinstate these places and potentially make them more permanent. I think that's our biggest hope. Sorry. Two things. One, the Georgia elections
0: in January are going to be very, very important for what the administration can get done, particularly in the first two years. Mm of of Biden's presidency. But I also think that over the last 40-ish years, um, a lot of changes to government have been made that have weakened some of the the checks and balances. Um, I mean, even recently with the Supreme Court nomination process where the Republicans decided to make it a simple majority to confirm someone rather than needing, I think it was 60... Seats, a
1: super
2: majority,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, um, a super majority prior, and now it's just a simple majority. But just going back in, and if you could change some of those those laws back to require um, some of that bipartisan support, and I realize that that's going to be a, a hard pill for some people to, to swallow because there are people out there who say, "Oh, like let's just go back and, and roll things back," and if
2: yeah, you know,
0: um, Democrats could win the two seats. And Georgia and Harris becomes the tiebreaker. Like, we can, you know, take advantage. But I think it's really important that, like, the Democrats don't use the same tricks from mm-hmm. from the Republican playbook to kind of force through what they want to force through. Mm-hmm. I think that it's really important that whatever happens has bipartisan support. And luckily, you know, there are, um, during government shutdowns, like, people got really pissed that they couldn't go to the, the Smithsonian so the next time it happens, like the Smithsonian stayed open (laughs) and they they passed like a mini funding bill because people were got tired of having their constituents call and yell at them. Um, so also like call and yell at your senators if you don't like what they're doing because they don't like being yelled at and they might do something to change. Um,
2: (laughs) Yes. Bother your
1: senators do it.
2: Yes. I think phone calls actually makes a difference. The emails less so phone calls is what makes the difference. But do, you know, make, make those phone calls, get involved,
0: um, and, and kind of re-put in some of those checks and balances that forces, you know, bipartisan support, um, and that also can be used to strengthen um, some of the laws that we have on the books. And with that, we are ever so slightly over <laughs> our 20-minute mark. Um, so we will see you after the break, where we will discuss some more specifics of what we expect to see in the incoming administration
1: did you know that we have a blog check out the women in archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes interested in supporting the podcast from the website you can check out our patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast we can give you a cool sticker in return again thank you for listening
0: welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been discussing the incoming Biden-Harris administration and what we think might happen in regards to cultural heritage management, um, tribal relations, archaeology. Um, And in this section, we're going to dive a little bit more into uh, Biden's relationships with tribal members. We mentioned last section that Biden was working with a transition team to kind of prep for Inauguration Day. And a recent addition to that transition team is the University of Iowa College of Law, Dean Kevin Washburn. Um, so he's been tapped to lead the transition team reviewing the Department of the Interior. And uh, Kevin Washburn is a member of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma. And he also has earned degrees at the University of Oklahoma, New Law School, and he's taught at a variety of different universities around the U.S. So he's got some interesting perspectives, I think, to to bring to the table. And it's also really encouraging to see Indigenous people being brought in at high levels of government to have their voices heard.
1: Exactly. Unfortunately, if we're looking at the current administration uh, and looking at Trump's treatment of tribes, indigenous peoples, and so forth. Unfortunately, we've seen a pretty dis- disrespectful approach uh, to tribes and their lands. Uh, we saw during um, uh, part of the administration that uh, tribal lands were, he tried to take, or the Trump administration tried to take land away from the Mashpee Wapanog tribe. Um, they had uh, uh, land that was put into a trust by the government for them and Trump tried to take that away. He's been disrespectful to um, Navajo code talkers. Uh, he's been disrespectful to people uh, of indigenous ancestry. So, unfortunately, we've got four years of a pretty terrible approach to tribal relations in a greater history of terrible relations with tribal peoples, unfortunately. And so I think it it is incredibly encouraging, like you said, Chelsea, that we already see the Biden team working hard to appoint um, Native Americans to these positions. And there's even a commitment to appoint Native Americans at high level government positions once he's actually um, in office and the administration is up and running.
2: Yeah, one of the things I really appreciated about Washburn's position um, is he's, he's, to start, not a stranger to the DOI. He was, um, during the Obama administration, Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs, is not the first Indigenous uh, person to serve in the BIA. However, as an overseer of the transition team for the entire Department of Interior is a whole different level. And I think that is something that I really appreciate about the Biden team and the way that they're approaching this is not just like well we're going to have you know the the person or a person who is represented by this agency involved in the agency mm-hmm. but overseeing the entirety of the larger agency structure and how it has been conducted and how they want it to be conducted so they have a power to potentially influence changes that will will take into consideration or i feel like is more likely to take into consideration the viewpoints and needs of different tribal entities nations mm-hmm. and um, perspectives from across the country because there's so many oh and yeah People forget that like oh well you know we have you know an indian in the bia it's it's great that's 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 all we need to do right but that's so far <laughs> from what is necessary. I mean, people at present have been doing that since the mid-1800s,
0: you know. Yeah, that's a, a really good point that it's often common to have Indigenous people in the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Indian Health Services, um, but it's about so much more than that. And even on Biden's website, you know, he talks about appointing Native Americans to high-level governmental positions, mm-hmm. not just within the Bureau of Indian Affairs or Indian Health Services, but like we're seeing Washburn and the Department of Interior. Um, and during the, the Biden-Obama administration, there were indigenous people in many positions across government, including the Dep- deputy secretary of the Interior, or senior members of the White House Domestic Policy Council, the White, White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, um, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Human Rights Council in Geneva. Mm -hmm. um, And Biden also appointed the first native female judge to a U.S. district court. And Biden has committed in the Biden-Harris administration to continue this trend to ensure that tribal nations have, um, and I quote from his website, a strong voice and role in the federal government. And that's just really important to see because, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier about recognizing the intersectional nature of a lot of these policies. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just laws that specifically deal with tribal affairs that impact indigenous lives. Um, It's not just archeology span laws that can affect cultural heritage. So it's really important to have this diversity of representation and viewpoints represented throughout the entire structure of the government. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's, that's an
1: it. excellent point. Because yeah, if we're looking at the past, it's, you're right. It's primarily very, very specific roles. And it'd be great across the board if we can have greater representation. And so yeah, I hopefully that will go a long way. Because I think for a long time, even looking at just our CRM regulations, people tend to do the bare minimum. And it's like, if you consult, that's all you need to do. It's like, no, 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 we need to bring in bring in everybody. And I thought one of the cool things on uh, Biden's website about um, how he wants to work with um, tribal nations is to have them provide a greater role in the care and management of public lands that are of cultural significance Mm -hmm. to tribal nations. So it's not so much just even having them consult on which land should be protected or what, which areas or that kind of, it's actually with the management itself and greater designation, just these larger roles, instead of just being like, we're the archeologists, we're gonna be in charge and uh, we'll consult with you in a few months type of thing. It's like, no, it's from, from the get-go. And I think that's fantastic.
2: Yeah,
0: I also think it's really important um, and I'm just gonna throw this out here that this is, you hear people talk about like diversity hires and this is not that. There was a recent study looking at um, biological animal as well as vegetation diversity in the U.S. And indigenous uh, managed sites have some of the highest, uh, levels of biological diversity. Ooh. Um, indigenous organizations are experts. They know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. This isn't, this isn't token. This is putting the best people for the job into the job. Um, and, and I think that that's really important to know as well. I'll see if I can find that article and link to it in the, in the show
2: notes. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we've we've spoken on this or touched on this before in some of our previous episodes with um indigenous management for fires um mm-hmm. and other land management discussions. Uh it's just something that's become uh in the far west here in the northwest in particular, something that's become almost a routine. Um, in certain areas in regards to certain uh, keystone species such as salmon management in the Pacific Northwest here, the tribes are heavily involved. So it's it's, it's great to see that the administration is taking the progress that's been seen in certain corners of the country and certain parts of land management or certain aspects of land management and hoping to create that sort of positive change in the rest of the country.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: definitely.
1: Um, on a looking in kind of in a different direction, I, I genuinely wonder how this is all going to play out in um, the Biden-Harris administration. There was the incredible court case, um, McGritt versus Oklahoma. And there are podcasts about it. There's one called This Land that covers a lot of uh, the the story leading up to um, the court decision. And what's fascinating with this court case is like, essentially the treaties with native American groups, essentially they should have all of Oklahoma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme court upheld the federal government's treaty responsibilities to protect the homelands in those areas. So hypothetically, if the treaty is upheld, most of Oklahoma now belongs to the tribes. But what's going to come from that? We don't know. This decision was in July and Biden has stated online that he will up, help uphold this um, court decision and uphold what's going on with there and um, uphold those regulations, whatnot. What that's actually going to entail should be fascinating because I honestly don't know how that's going to work out. If if the treaty was really being upheld, the land would automatically revert, and then mm-hmm. state government would essentially be put into tribal government.
2: Well, there is part of Oklahoma. I think it was like the eastern half, or a little bit more than the eastern half, that had been Indian territory. Is it? Mm-hmm. The- it's a big chunk. Yeah. It's a very large chunk. Um, it really, I agree. It it will be fascinating to see how that rolls out. Um, partly because I mean, the way that treaty law has been uh, carried out, it changes by administration and always Mm -hmm. has. And that's been the downside and the challenge with working with with treaty law and Native American law through the years. And I mean, I'm definitely not an expert, but it has been something that I've read up on occasionally here and there. And just knowing the tiniest tip of the iceberg, it is incredibly complex and it is going to be a whole new way of interpreting treaty law and implementing. And the implementation is what is going to be interesting to see change. Uh, Because the interpretation could be, you know, one thing, but the the way that that is carried out on the ground is something entirely different. And this really addresses a lot of the trouble that has happened with, yeah, state law versus federal law being able to, it's it's the jurisdictional issue that has plagued uh, reservations for decades or centuries, depending on the group. Um, Well, it's all
1: overshadowed by a lack of good faith towards.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. And and I think this is another area where we need to have a conversation about what can be done to make it so that that these rulings are. uh, I mean, it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of. Protecting indigenous homelands in Indian country. Um, What can the government do to make sure that it's harder to contest those? Because, you know, the Trump administration, after that ruling came in, just expanded its efforts to make life harder for the tribes in the case and to threaten those those tribal homelands. Um, This shouldn't be a partisan issue. You know, this this is a treaty that the US government entered into and has failed to uphold its end of, you know, a, a binding international agreement, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Um, this this shouldn't be partisan. There shouldn't be a debate. We signed on the dotted line. You need to uphold that. And, and what can be done so that the next administration, I think Biden has said that he's probably only going to run for one term, mm-hmm. um, whether Kamala runs again. I mean, Trump has floated the idea of running in 2024, God. whether there are other people on the on the ballot. But no matter what happens beyond the four years, what can the Biden administration do to make sure that, that these responsibilities are adhered to in perpetuity?
2: yeah.
1: Because as we've seen, it doesn't take much to dismantle everything from clean air to clean water to the concept of uh, facts. So, um, yeah. yeah, like, how can this be a long term?
0: So goal? so I would actually make the argument that the undermining of some of the checks and balances, I think they said this earlier, has been going on since the since the 1940s. So oh, yeah. Actually, yes, think- yes that it's a super, super long-term strategy that we're seeing come to its fruition. Mm-hmm. And because it's kind of reached the, this like end stage, um, it's now much easier to get rid of these regulations. And what we need to see is, is to have some of the, the ease of, of changing this over be rolled back, put some more checks and balances in place, um, yeah. make it harder to be assholes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but the, the silver lining in a lot of this it's just showing should these plans go into fruition with this administration there, this is definitely a much better approach, a, a much better good faith effort than has been done previously. And so hopefully we'll be able to have, see a much better relationship being fostered between um to government entities, essentially, and that treaties will be supported, better programs will be created um, in consultation and with the support and in these positions of Native American peoples that hopefully a much better relationship will be fostered at the end of the day. Yeah. And good would come yeah. from it,
2: too. That's the hope. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm, I'm intrigued to see how the new Supreme Court affects uh. Some of these things, um, both on the tribal front, as we were just noting, but also elsewhere. I think it's Roberts um, that has actually been thumbing the scale towards the more liberal side, even though he's a fairly conservative judge, because of the way that the the court has been put off balance. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was something I read recently that I thought was really interesting. I can't remember exactly which cases, but just his, his vote was unexpected in certain directions. Um, but at the same time, part of me is like, that's the point of being a judge. Like, <laughs> yeah. going You're supposed to be fair and balanced. And reading the law as it is. And I know that there's two ways generally that laws are read as intended or as they should be. And that's where RBG was very heavy on the, as they should be like law changes with the intention of the times, with the culture of the times, um, more conservative judges tend to err on what was intended by the original drafters of the law. So that's the, the difference with judges, um, in a general broad stroke sense. Um, But then there's been a lot closer look at how each individual judge has ruled on specific cases and how they feel and interpret, you know, the previous cases or landmark cases. And that's something that's I mean, that's those are normal field questions for screening the judges as they come to nomination. But it was out of either of you watched or listened to the uh, nomination proceedings.
1: Um, I watched some of them and got too mad, and yeah. had to step away. <laughs> <That's right.
2: laughs> obviously, i'm not I'm not a big fan of the way that she answered a lot of those questions. Um, Amy Barrt. Yeah, but we'll see how things play out because, I mean, Roberts is known to be a fairly conservative judge, but, you know, hasn't necessarily acted that, that way. and i I must say also with that, Trump's appointments have been, fascinatingly, like, his judgment of character has been off in, in a lot of cases, which has been really interesting to see him appoint someone that he thinks is going to do something very specific, and then they don't. And that's not all of the cases, but a couple of times I've taken note of that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I think that the, the makeup of the Supreme Court
0: is going to play a role for generations, particularly because Trump has... Um, nominated some some younger individuals who have a chance to to be on the bench for quite a long time
2: yeah
0: Um, Mm -hmm. we are out of time for this segment and when we return we will be discussing um, some more issues with land management see you after the break
1: looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Arche fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archae animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening!
0: Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we have been discussing um, what cultural heritage management may look like under the incoming Biden-Harris administration. Um, We talked a little bit about the impacts that we expect the Biden-Harris administration to have with uh, tribes and tribal sovereignty, and kind of some some broad strokes of what they're doing in the administration. And in this segment, we're going to focus a little bit more on land management. And Emily, I know you've been like itching to talking about this, so take it away.
1: Oh yeah, I'm excited. So uh, the current administration has really been almost anti. Land, public lands, in many respects, uh, and the desire to open uh, public lands from parks, to monuments, to um, refuges to um, opening them up to fracking, oil, fishing, and so on, where a lot Destroying of
0: these- things along the border wall?
1: Oh, yes, all the all the things. <laughs> and so it's it's very frustrating, especially as somebody who um, my background is public land management and cultural resources, to see this dismantling of protecting these places and then opening up for business and then treating them more like a business entity as opposed to a place that we're trying to protect for future generations. So it's really heartening to see with uh, the Biden plan going back to uh, the original intent for a lot of these parks, monuments, and so forth, that we're actually trying to protect these for future generations and different land agencies. They do have different missions in terms of like forest service, you can have timber thinning within reason. And then like BLM, you can have grazing within reason. Mm-hmm. And so it's going back to that within reason type of managing, as opposed to like, let's open it all up for everything. And so it's really good to know that his plan um, tends to be more conservation minded and trying to go back to the original intent for a lot of the missions of these public land managing agencies. And so that's that's really good to know. And then he's taking it a step further that he wants to have like the civilian, cli- civilian climate core and having these groups of scientists and land managers working together to try to help the ecology and climate solutions of these uh, fragile areas. Then on top of that, he wants to, as we discussed in the previous uh, segment, have tribes be an integral part of these land managing agencies. And then on top of that, um, he wants to, and I have no idea how this would work. He said he's committed to signing an executive order to conserve 30% of America's lands and waters by 2030. And so 30%. I don't know if that includes current um, public lands or 30% more. And a lot of this is so that we can protect places of um, significant cultural heritage, of significant biodiversity, and so forth. How that's actually going to happen is beyond me. Um, As we've seen, executive orders can go pretty far, but they can be easily dismantled. So I'm not sure how he'd reach this goal. But it's heartening.
0: Does anyone have any idea how much of American land is currently under public? I will Google uh, it. Just, okay, yeah, because because that would be really interesting. I I kind of had a hard, a hard time imagining that it would be an additional thirty percent. But the you know, conservation of land that currently exists is super important for you know cultural heritage. Um, you know, particularly if they've got sacred sites on them, that's really important. For uh, indigenous groups, you know, it's good for mental health. Um, you know, we've certainly seen with the, the coronavirus pandemic that more and more people are walking and hiking and going outside and engaging with nature as kind of a way to, to deal and it has been really positive um, for people's mental health with everything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also from a from a climate change perspective if we conserve lands, um, you know, and again, you know, tree thinning within reason, that sort of thing, but we can protect biodiversity. Um, trees are excellent at um, converting carbon dioxide into oxygen. They can be a really big ally in the fight to combat climate change. Um, certain types of, you know, like bayous and swamps can be nitrogen Mm -hmm. things, which are really good wetlands
1: bogs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so the the conservation benefits the world. It benefits individual people. It benefits tribes. It benefits wildlife. Um, it is it is profoundly positive.
2: Mm-hmm. So and, yeah,
1: and obviously we need to. I mean, I I I kind of get where some groups are coming from. It's like yes, we need to. It needs to be within reason. Yes, we need resources like natural gas. Yes, we like I can see then why there is pushback. So, how can we do this so that there isn't a massive pushback if the administration swings the other way after yeah. the Biden Harris administration? Um, so, it's like how can we do this within reason that but still support um uh you know policies to decrease climate change, etc. And just real quick, it's 28% Um, that the government owns. Increasing that by
2: 2% would, seems pretty reasonable. Well, that number is as of September, 2018. So we don't know how that's changed since then. We, I wonder if that incorporates um, the larger uh, square, not square footage, but the area for um, Bears Ears and Grand Escalante Because if those two are at their maximum, would it fill in that 2%? That's possible. So this may not be very far off from reality. Um, The challenge with, and this is a pushback that I see often um, from some of the Western states, is that the majority of certain states are federally owned. Um, And so there's a lot of pushback, for example, here in Oregon um, from some of the conservative counties because 90 percent of the county is federally owned. Although it must be noted that what's what's
1: interesting about that is that a lot of those those land spaces are still open for Mm -hmm. grazing, timber, grass. Like there's a lot of stuff that landowners. It's just they don't want to have to pay for it.
2: Yeah. Well, and the, the funny thing is, I mean, this goes back to a very, our very first episode is the <laughs> Malheur occupation occurred because some ranchers decided that they didn't want uh, to pay the fines for so many years of grazing. Um, and they also uh, did a, uh, Tried to do a contained burn by themselves, and it got out of hand. Um, so that was another fine. Mm. <laughs> that they got. And it should be noted, like,
1: the the grazing permit stuff in the grand scheme of things are pretty darn
2: cheap. It's so cheap. It's yeah. ridiculous. And that's where people are like, but it's a fee. I'm like, yeah, it. Yes, yeah, we still have to pay people to manage that so yeah but it, it is hard because right my grandparents
0: were farmers mm-hmm. um, and and it is hard you know over the last half a century um prices for beef prices for uh various different crops for for milk have gone down you know government subsidies aren't maybe what they once were um it's a really really hard industry it is at a situation where you know you're you're barely scraping by and there are a lot of farmers who are barely scraping by and it's really unfortunate and you start looking for things that you can cut and yeah land is expensive even in the U.S. where there is Mm -hmm. so much land right Britain is tiny compared to the U.S. in terms <laughs> yeah. of land mass. There is so much space in the U.S., but land is still really expensive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and yes, it is expensive, but if you buy it and you own it outright, it's usually cheaper to do that than to, to pay rent for 30 years um, or 50 years or whatever it is. So I can I can understand and sympathize. Mm-hmm. And I think that instead of just saying um, – no, we're not going to sell off this land, you know, suck it up, buttercup. Essentially, there needs to be a, a more nuanced conversation, and there needs to be a conversation about support for ranchers, support for farmers, yes. and what can be done. Um, I, I truly genuinely like to believe that people want to behave reasonably. Yes. But if, the, if it's a decision between, and there, there are notable exceptions, uh, but if it's a decision between losing your farm and not wanting to give the government some money. I, I understand that that mm. personal desire to protect you and yours. Um, and there is so a lot I of distrust of support. the
1: government too. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. And so, I mean, if just to briefly note, um, There is that unfortunate level of distrust, too, because there have been situations where the government through eminent domain has taken land. And so there is that ingrained distrust of like, well, my grandparents used to own that grazing land. Why can't I still use it? So I do think there is definitely a valid argument that there needs – you're right, Chelsea, a more nuanced argument – About that situation. And there are programs, but I think just our farming and ranching system has changed dramatically from what it would have even been uh, um, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, that it's probably just no longer sustainable and it's just not profitable anymore for farmers and ranchers. So how can we change that? So I know that's kind of off topic, but I'm kind of interested in seeing how like the farm bill rollout plan will work under the Biden-Harris administration versus now.
2: Well, mm-hmm. especially since he does have a big focus on helping rural America. Um, and that's where archaeologists work. I mean, we go into some of these areas that are sparsely populated and it's all cattle farms or mm-hmm. um or cattle ranches and various other things. Um, They're full maybe- of historic ditches. I have recorded so many historic <laughs> ditches. Oh, yes. My favorites are the reservoirs and ditches that uh, were pre-Army um, Corps of Engineers. There we go. Because they didn't have, uh, they they would dig all of these things, and then it wouldn't hold water. <laughs> <laughs> So those are fun, Um, but that's an aside, Um, but a lot of, you're right, a lot of these historic practices um, from the 19th century were incredibly unsustainable. And to say that you want things to go back to how they were during the days of, you know, westward expansion is not going to happen, period. So, whether you think it should or shouldn't, that's just, it's not sustainable. It was Mm -hmm. extremely extractive, um, both for people and our natural resources, and extraordinarily damaging in many ways. So, that's what led to the Dust Bowl in many regards. And various other things the displacement of all of the tribes, the forest uh, deforestation situations, and all parts of the U.S. So, I, looking at how to approach extractive technologies that are ne- necessary, like you were saying, um, and making it more sustainable over generations, rather than looking to how their grandparents did it, because how their grandparents did it wasn't going to be sustainable. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's definitely, and that's different. the way that U- the U.S. has done extractives since the founding of the U.S. Basically. Well, it also makes you wonder about kind of training programs,
0: but right? Obviously, fracking has been a big conversation
1: mm-hmm. um, yeah, and around. And Biden yes, has said he doesn't not support fracking.
0: Yeah, so so I think Biden grew up in, in Pennsylvania and fracking, you know, has has allowed communities to stay in place. And there is an issue with kind of rural community loss where people are leaving rural yeah. areas, the farms, to go to the city because they don't see that lifestyle is being sustainable. And even if that's where their friends are, and even that's when their families are, they feel like they're, they're almost being driven off, mm-hmm. um, also being pulled in by the opportunities of the city. And if you've started to run some sort of program, um, and I think like the UK is doing an interesting retraining scheme, which has gotten some good press and some bad press, but for people, uh, noticeably only citizens, um, if you're not a citizen, you can't take advantage of this, but citizens who work in industries that have been particularly Hard hit like the arts, um, you know, bar work, retail, that sort of thing that you can go and, and get this retraining to fill jobs that are needed, and whether that's, you know, engineering, construction, um, computer work. I think a lot of it is construction right now. Mm-hmm. But there's always building. Set up retraining systems that train people how to do um, setup and maintenance on solar fields, mm-hmm. right? Because there are huge swaths of the US that get a ton of sun and solar energy is more renewable than energy from fracking it's less damaging to the environment and it could provide jobs but you do need some sort of scheme in place to bridge the gap of yeah. the knowledge gap and because university is so expensive in the US it's really hard potentially mm-hmm. for someone to say let me go and get this degree to then try and get the, you know, the startup seed capital that I need to buy these panels. Um, I think that there does need to be something to fill in. But if the government could figure out how to step in in such a way to to help, you know, encourage sustainability on farms and make sure that families and communities that wanted to stay in the same place could, that could be really, really powerful.
1: That yeah. could be. And I think, I mean, hopefully there will be plans like that. And in- a, a lot, kind of what it comes down to for me with a lot of the Biden-Harris administration plans that I'm, I'm seeing online and whatnot, it's making me cautiously, very cautiously optimistic. It's yes. a nice feeling. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> I think if there are potential programs that, like Chelsea, what you're noting, if Biden looks into those types of things, or if he even just like fulfills an iota of the plans that he has. I think that's a
2: good start. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yes, I agree. I think it would be also, I like the, the retraining programs. I think that's what Obama had sort of in mind, but never really got around to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But doing something like that, and maybe even integrating, um, like land management, employment, So people who live in those areas, because I mean, people who go and get degrees for land management um, often end up living in those rural areas, sort of as, you know, somewhat outsiders, I think it would be a good move to see about recruiting people into those programs that already live in those areas uh, because it's that pride of place and pride of space, much like um, tribes have for the Mm -hmm. same land. And I think that might be a good step in that direction. I think that's a really good point.
0: I I will say,
2: um, I do feel,
0: both with a healthy dose of relief, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and also you know some, some cautious optimism about the future. But I also think that it's vitally important that people continue the same level of engagement. Yeah. There is a lot of work to do to yeah. to heal the divides in the U.S. and to help America kind of re- reach the potential that. It has. Um, and I think that, that everyone kind of has to buckle down and do that work. And, and that starts with like, wear a mask. Yeah. Stay home, go <laughs> your neighbor. Um, if, if we kill everyone, that doesn't help anything. Yeah. Um, but, but it's not just about voting in an election every four years or even voting in an election every two years. Um, you know, you really have to do that—that that community work and keep up pressure on lawmakers over the years. Not just be engaged on a national level, but like be engaged in state politics, be engaged in your local county politics. Um, you know, get on boards if if you feel passionate and want to make a difference. So so cautiously optimistic,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but but don't relent. There's work to do. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: It's like now that we've got somebody who supports more progress right real road. the real work now begins. Yes. yes.
0: We've, we've gotten onto the right road again.
1: <laughs> now we got to make
0: sure that we travel down it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It'll
1: not too good. fast, not too slow. Just draft.
0: And, and then we bring everyone with us. We can't we can't leave people behind. That oh, yeah. That's why we, I think a lot of people voted for Trump is because they did feel left behind and ignored. Yeah. Um
1: so this road it's a giant pickup. With a really big flatbed, and we're just (laughs) yelling at people, get in! (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So,
2: (laughs) trying to make sure everyone that's in the truck is on the same page, and you're not having people throwing, you know, balled up pieces of map at the driver, telling them to turn left when. Yes, (laughs) Yes,
1: no road exactly. the yeah. <laughs> I like this analogy. <laughs> uh,
0: that, that does bring us to the uh, end of our episode. I think that's a good kind of visual to end on. <laughs> um, but ladies, as always, it's so lovely
1: to talk with you. And thank you. Thank you. Always fun. What, oh, and uh, check, our, right. check out our blog posts on womeninarchaeology.com We're at WomenArchies on Twitter. And please feel free to email us if you have any interest in coming on the show or if you have show ideas for us. We would love to hear from you.
0: And the email is womeninarchaeology at gmail.com.
1: And rate, review, and subscribe.
0: Yes. Until next time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. See you again next month. (laughs) Bye. 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 Bye.